I had sort of been planning what I was going to do when I left the family business, which was to travel. The funny thing about Durst is that he was really social, like more social than the average person. He had all these friends, you know, and especially women friends who he tended to be close to. And he was relatively out and about. I think what he wanted to hide from was that the circles that his privilege as a Durst family member would have exposed him to inside New York or Los Angeles proper. I bought property and houses in Northern California, which I had always liked. I started spending very little time in New York. I would be with Debbie when I was there, and the rest of the time in either Northern California or in Dallas. Trinidad, California was pretty similar. Evenings were spent with my various compulsive activities. I would always smoke marijuana first and eat and drink until I was sufficiently tired and enough to fall asleep. She went to her aunt's shoe store one day, and then she leapt down the 101. And as she was walking along the 101, she vanished. It is clear that Durst was in the area at the time. And after the jinx aired, there were a number of news reports linking him to other suspected murders. Robert Durst's time in Northern California is often just an aside in his larger story, one locale in a list of many where he owned property. His time spent there will come under closer scrutiny when prosecutors retrace Durst's steps in the days before Susan Berman's December 2000 murder. Prosecutors will argue that Durst flew to San Francisco International Airport, caught a hopper flight north to Eureka, California, picked up his car from its storage location, and drove down to Los Angeles, where he allegedly proceeded to murder his longtime friend. If this series of actions sounds elaborate, that's because it is. It's also in step with the murky, chaotic period of Bob's life between 1994 and 2001, in which he was always on the move, bouncing between homes across the country, never staying very long in one place. In this episode, we'll try to piece together answers about why Durst ended up in Northern California and how he spent his time there, according to Bob himself. That's coming up after the break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As we look at Robert Durst's time in Northern California, we'll be joined by special guest Michelle Dean. Michelle is a journalist and critic who has written for The New Yorker, The Nation, and Harper's, among others. Michelle covered Robert Durst's time in Northern California for The Guardian and will be offering insights based on her reporting. In this series, we're not looking for direct answers so much as exploring Robert Durst's perception of the world. We aim to paint a fuller picture of the man on trial for murder a second time by assembling Durst's statements on the record into a narrative, read by actor David Kelsey. Before we get into Robert Durst's time in Northern California, we need to start with why and how he left New York. I had sort of been planning what I was going to do when I left the family business, which 
was to travel, which I never had the opportunity to do before. The Durst family business is very local. It's just in Manhattan. The period between his wife Kathy's disappearance in 1982 until he officially left the Durst organization in 1994 was a contentious one for Bob Durst. Douglas Durst has said that he kept a length of pipe on his desk to protect himself against Bob, who in turn kept a sharp pointed plumber's wrench on his. Bob's unpredictable behavior put those within the Durst organization on edge. According to Douglas, by the early 1990s, Bob was mumbling to himself during client meetings and urinating in wastebaskets around the office. In 1994, Seymour made the legal changes necessary for Douglas to take over leadership of the Durst organization and become the successor trustee of the family trust. This meant that Douglas, not eldest son Bob, would control the Durst family business and the trust that holds the family properties. Despite his shares in the trust remaining intact and providing him about $2 million every year, Bob saw this reorganization as the loss of his birthright. The switch was made official on December 19, 1994, Douglas's 50th birthday. At a lunch that week where the changes were to be discussed, Bob was a no-show. He had cleaned out his office and set up an address to which his mail should be forwarded, effectively resigning from the company without saying a word to anyone. I didn't want to travel by myself. I didn't have anybody to travel with. Between the time when I was married to Kathy, when I met Deborah Cheriton in the mid-80s, I bought property and houses in Northern California, which I had always liked, and in Texas and San Francisco, where I had bought a condominium, a development project on Telegraph Hill. I started spending very little time in New York. I would be with Debbie when I was there, and the rest of the time in either Northern California or in Dallas. Robert Durst met Deborah Lee Chariton in 1988, when she was in her early 30s and Durst was in his mid-40s. Though there is little material available about the nature of their early relationship, by the time that Bob left the Durst organization, they were romantically involved. When I left New York City in 1995, I told Debbie I intended to start a new life in California. I had owned land in way northern California, close to the Oregon border, about 400 miles north of San Francisco for many years, but it was just land. There wasn't any place to live on it, so I bought a house in the nearest town, which was the town of, of Trinidad. The population, I think, six or seven hundred or something like that. And I started living in that house that I bought there. Bob appears to have sought out California as a fresh start after becoming, in his own words, the older brother who was passed over. This is journalist Michelle Dean, who covered Durst's time in Northern California for The Guardian. Trinidad is in Humboldt County, um, which is one of the northernmost counties of California. It's coastal, and in fact, Trinidad is perched on a cliff over a sea. 
It's a very beautiful, rugged coastline up there. Humboldt County itself is sort of a backcountry part of California where a lot of Vietnam vets and also a lot of pot growers have traditionally lived. But Trinidad itself is actually like a rich little enclave in the middle of it. The houses there are beautiful. The town is full of like cute little art stores. Bob purchased his house in Trinidad in June 1995 from Diane Bush, who lived next to the three-story property. Bush, a well-liked and well-known local, owned an RV park and several properties in the Trinidad area. Bush and Durst became close. They would go to the movies or local events together. They were occasional running buddies. Diane told a local news outlet that Durst spent 50 or 60 percent of his time in Trinidad and that she and he were in frequent contact via phone, email, and fax. Again, this is journalist Michelle Dean. I think Durst was attracted to remote areas of the country, places where he could hide. Eureka, which is another place he spent some time in up there, although his house was in Trinidad. Eureka is like right next to Trinidad. It's often referred to as the lost coast up there. I think he liked places where he could live among people who were in his demographic, meaning people who were cultured and who had a certain amount of wealth, but who weren't necessarily, you know, society people or, or living out in the public eye. After Durst's arrest for the murder and dismemberment of Morris Black, Diane Bush struggled to reconcile that someone she considered a friend could possibly have done what Bob was accused of doing. I thought he was totally a victim of the ruthless press, Diane told the local North Coast Journal. She even invited him to seek shelter in one of the remote campgrounds she operated if he needed to escape the media. After Durst fled Texas upon his arrest for the murder of Morris Black, Diane Bush's campground manager, Bradley Bass, asserted to the North Coast Journal that Durst had stayed there during the nationwide manhunt. Bass said he saw Durst sleeping in a pup tent amidst a group of off-duty police and highway patrol officers who were at the campground for salmon season. Bush's faith in her friend eventually evaporated. Prior to her death in 2002, Bush believed that Durst had been lying to her all along, telling a local news outlet that Durst was a notorious liar and extremely dangerous. When Bob sold the Trinidad house in 2000, he told Bush he was leaving to focus on development projects in Big Lagoon, seven miles to the north. This, too, may be a complete fabrication, as the Big Lagoon project is non-existent in the public record. Durst even told Bush that he had a daughter with whom he shopped when he was in New York. Another lie. When I arrived up there, most of the locals were pretty cagey. It was clear that everybody remembered him. And I do remember walking into one small business and asking the business owner casually in conversation, like, do you know Robert Durst? And she said, oh, everybody around here knows him. And most people are friends with him, but they probably wouldn't admit it now. There was that one business owner, and she said her friend had dated Durst for a long time. And it's funny because I remember, again, it was a week after the jinx came out, and she said, oh, my friend dated him. And then I don't know if I had some kind of look on my face, but she, she said, oh, well, you know, she's actually dead now, so I couldn't introduce you. And then she said, oh, oh but he didn't kill her, just to be clear. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. During 1995, 1996, and 1997, Deborah and I saw one another infrequently and did not speak regularly on the telephone. I gradually became unhappier. I went on several dates, but only because I felt I should want to. In testimony during the trial for the murder of Morris Black, Durst was asked if he had a circle of friends in either Northern California or San Francisco. Durst responded simply, no, sir. We now know that that is not an entirely true statement. I think the funny thing about Durst is that he was really social, like more social than the average person. He had all these friends, you know, and especially women friends who he tended to be close to. I mean, we see that in Susan Berman, but it's actually a theme of the rest of his life as well. I actually think he was relatively out and about. I think what he wanted to hide from was the, the circles that his privilege as, as a Durst family member would have exposed him to inside New York or Los Angeles proper. He seemed to have two circles. He had the people of Trinidad who are mostly just, you know, people who live in Northern California, which is sort of hippie, arty types. He also appeared to have a circle of, frankly, drug users and homeless people and transients. Again, that's something else that we know about Durst is that he often cultivated a circle of people like that pretty much wherever he lived. He was known for sort of being involved with the transient population up there. Bob Durst's name was brought up in two missing person investigations related to this period of time in Northern California. Kristen Modaferi and Karen Mitchell were both teenagers that went missing in 1997. Modaferi from San Francisco and Mitchell from nearby Eureka. After the jinx aired in 2015, Modaferi's father told the New York Daily News that the family would ask police to re-examine Durst in relation to Kristen's disappearance. Law enforcement, having looked at and cleared Durst in 2003, swiftly shut down speculation that Durst was in any way involved in Kristen's case. The Mitchell case is somewhat more complicated, though the Eureka Police Department has never formally named Durst as a suspect in her disappearance. 16-year-old Karen Mitchell went missing from Eureka on her way to work. She had just left her aunt's shoe store, a location at which Durst had allegedly shopped. Here again is journalist Michelle Dean. She was from Long Beach originally, and she had had some issues with her mother, so she had gone to live with her aunt and uncle in Eureka, which was up north. I guess the thought was she could get in less trouble there than she could in Long Beach. She went to her aunt's shoe store one day to help out, and then she left for her job at a daycare down the 101 from the shoe store. And as she was walking along the 101, she vanished. It is clear that Durst was in the area at the time. 
And after the jinx aired, there were a number of news reports linking him to other suspected murders. This kind of happens when there's a wave of coverage of a new killer. Um, reporters link it to these cases. Pumble County has been a haven for people who dropped out of sort of the mainstream culture in America. So you get a lot of people up there who are, you know, vaguely criminals. Karen Mitchell's family, they also seemed kind of dubious and didn't really believe that Durst was necessarily connected. It's possible that Karen worked with one of the homeless shelters in the area and could have known Durst through that. There's nobody who concretely can say that. And to be honest, there's quite a lot of crime. It was never quite a national story when she disappeared because it's just kind of a place where people disappear into all the time. Eureka Police Chief Andrew Mills said that his department had reached out to investigators in the Durst case about Karen Mitchell. He was quick to add that, quote, it's just a potential possibility. I don't want to call it a lead, end quote. The Eureka PD has stated that the Karen Mitchell case remains an active missing person investigation and that they are investigating all possible leads. As of this recording, however, there is no compelling evidence linking Robert Durst to the disappearance of Karen Mitchell. A typical day, whether in New York City, Connecticut, Dallas, San Francisco, or or Trinidad, California, was pretty similar. I would get up late in the morning and spend the rest of the day doing chores and errands. Evenings were spent with my various compulsive activities, maybe a, a couple times a week. I would go to a bar or a movie. I I would always smoke marijuana first and eat and drink until I was sufficiently tired and enough to fall asleep. If I had to do something, such as travel to another city or to see Debbie, I would have to force myself to be controlled for a day or two beforehand. And if I was unable to do so, I would postpone my plans. After his exit from the Durst organization, Bob never stayed in one place for long. Estimates range from a few days in a location to weeks in a single spot, but it's difficult to recreate his itinerant schedule or pinpoint Durst's exact location at any given time. Even Deborah Sheridan, Durst's girlfriend and later his wife, often didn't know where in the country Bob was. There is a ritual aspect to Durst's time in Northern California that is relevant to the case against Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. When he would head to Trinidad, he would purchase tickets in advance, fly to San Francisco International Airport, SFO, and then take a hopper flight up to the nearest airport in the college town of Eureka, California. Durst did this so many times that he and the United Express flight crew would recognize each other. He arranged with a car dealership just outside Eureka to store the Ford Explorer he had purchased there, taking a shuttle from the airport to his car. He'd then make the approximately 20-minute drive to his house in Trinidad. Durst rarely took red-eye overnight flights back to New York. The prosecution in the Berman case argues as follows. Durst's purchase of a ticket at 9.16 p.m. at the counter at San Francisco Airport on December 23, 2000 for a red-eye flight to New York City constitutes a significant enough change in pattern to raise suspicion. The prosecution further alleges that Durst drove from Eureka to Los Angeles, murdered Susan Berman, and then drove back north to fly out of San Francisco airport and provide himself an alibi. 
Durst has provided several different explanations for this atypical behavior in December of 2000. In testimony during his trial in Galveston, Durst suggested that he had decided to wrap up his affairs in Northern California because the social climate there had turned against him as his notoriety reached the West Coast. I intended to go out to California. I thought I was going to go there for a week or 10 days, but I ended up going there for five or six. I called the lawyer who was handling the development in San Francisco because there was supposed to be a community board meeting shortly after New Year's for the building permit I was working on. Initially, the architect wanted me to go to the community board meeting, and I, I called him. I right away sensed that something was different, and I asked him flat out if he had seen the media reports on me, and he said he had. I asked him if he thought it was a good idea that I go to the community board meeting, and he said it would not be a good idea. They said that the building code does not recognize the public image of the developer, but people are only human. We decided that I should not attend the public hearing in January. I surmised that they wished they had never gotten involved in the project. I was a little surprised about the reaction to me in New York City. I was a lot surprised in San Francisco. In an in-custody interview with Robert Durst in 2015, Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney John Lewin asked Durst to explain what he was doing during his trip to California in December of 2000. I don't remember what exactly I was doing in Garberville, and I, I've tried to remember, and I really don't know. I, th I think I was wrapping up my affairs. I had sold the house, and he still had an office. I still had a car, and I think I went out there to take my stuff out of the office. It was rented, and to sell the car. Sold the house in Trinidad, still had the car. I, I think I sold the car in San Francisco. I'm, I'm just not sure what I did with that. Durst's defense in the Susan Berman trial now stipulates to a completely new set of facts. In his opening statement in 2020, Durst's attorney, Dick DeGuerin, explained that, yes, Robert Durst was in Los Angeles in December of 2000, and that Durst and Susan Berman had planned to spend time together. When Durst arrived at Susan's home, however, he found her dead. In a panic, Durst wrote and mailed an anonymous note to the Beverly Hills Police Department, alerting them to a, quote, cadaver, end quote, at Berman's address. And in the words of his defense team, quote, ran, end quote, back to New York. When Robert Durst takes the stand in his trial for the murder of Susan Berman, the prosecution is likely to ask Durst about the responses he gave to John Lewin in 2015 when asked if he drove to Los Angeles in December of 2000 and found Susan's body. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one and head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and co-produced by Alexis Bartolo. Passages from Robert Durst's written and spoken comments were read by actor David Kelsey. Post-production and editing was handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.